Parenting is Political is only made possible because of listeners like you. If you would like to help support the podcast, you can go to our website, parentingispolitical.org, and become a monthly subscriber. Also, don't forget to like us on Facebook and check out our Instagram. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. Parenting is Political is sponsored by Teratots. Teratots Online is the natural parenting unboutique, curating simple joys and happy necessities to help you feel supported, connected, and confident in your natural parenting choices. For more information, visit terra-tots.com. That's T-E-R-R-A-T-O-T-S.com. Hey, y'all. We have with us this week Mike Adamick. Mike is a number one best-selling author. He has several books out, uh, most notably the Dad's Book of Awesome, Craft, Science, and Cookbooks. His work has appeared on The Today Show, The CBS Morning Show, New York Times, and NPR. Also probably a lot more places that I don't know about. Um, I had the best time interviewing Mike. He's very, very sweet and um, gives some really thoughtful answers. We talked from everything from how to not be a terrible white guy to what it's like when our children keep us accountable to the things that we've taught them that come back to bite us. Um, And we also talk about his upcoming book about raising empowered daughters. This is a really, really great episode. I'm excited to share it with y'all. Once again, I'm not going to take up too much time in in the introduction, but I did want to remind you that a part of radical parenting is making sure that you take care of yourself. So find some time this weekend to do something that's just for you. That way that you feel refueled and able to show up for as your best version of yourself for your kiddos. All right, y'all, you have a good one and enjoy the episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Parenting is Political. Uh, my name is Mo, and I'm joined, as always, by our five-month-old August. And this week, we are interviewing Mike. And can you say hello, Mike? Hi. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for, thanks for being here. Um, we're really excited to talk this week about what it is, what it means to be raising daughters as feminists, as um, a cisgender dude. <laughs> so yeah. I'm excited to have you as a guest. And if you don't mind, just quickly describing um, what you do, what your work is, and um, just a little bit about yourself. I'm a, a former journalist turned stay-at-home dad about 12 years ago. And I live in San Francisco with my wife, Dana, and my daughter, Emmy, who's 12, and is needing kind of less and less of me, you know, day-to-day hand-holding and making sure she doesn't jump off the roof and things like that. <laughs> so I'm kind of segueing back into freelancing and book writing, and my pronouns are he, him, and his. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, so y'all said you're just, you're located in California, you said? San Francisco. San Francisco. All right. And um, so some of the work that you've been doing, I know, has been over the course of several years. Um, And so I was just kind of curious about your journey of understanding what it's like to be in this society as a white man and waking up to the reality of like privileges and you had a daughter and what it's been like raising a daughter and kind of waking up to those privileges like I was talking about. Um, do you mind sharing your journey a little bit about that? 
No, that's great. I like the idea of a journey or, you know, what Michelle Obama just talked about of like the becoming. Yeah. Um, it's just, so I guess my journey is, you know, typical white suburban boy growing up in America who was probably raised with, not from my parents, but certainly from society, some pretty garbage views about my place in society. Um, and slowly waking up to how complicit I was in that in terms of, you know, like bullying perceived weaker groups, boys, girls at a young age, teasing, taunting, that type of thing. And um, kind of realizing, I think early, but not early enough to escape that, um, being raised by a single mom from like age 12 on and just kind of seeing the stuff that she went through and how hard it was and the stories she would bring back from going back to school and going back to work and realizing, you know, hey, I played up some, I didn't know the vocabulary at the time, but certainly some unearned privileges. Um, and then bringing that, you know, into a workplace too as a reporter and, you know, thinking I'm all that. And, you know, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps and, you know, then meeting a wonderful woman and seeing the struggles that she goes through and certainly, you know, seeing the struggles that my daughter went through, is going through, and will continue to go through for the rest of her life, really did certainly wake me up more than previously, I think, and also really just smack me with the idea that, you know, once you kind of start on that journey, that I think if you have a certain place in society based on no other thing than, you know, your sex or your, how you do gender, I think there's a moral imperative to do better um, and to keep on that journey and try to help, hmm. um, uh, you know, my daughter, my wife, but not just that, you know, because that kind of lends an idea that I'm only out for what's, you know, mine or, you know, women in their position, you know, based on their relationship to me versus kind of how we all see, you know, how... Society is really a caste system for so many people, men, women. Uh, uh, the idea that you know there is the binary, um, and that we need to not buy into that anymore. Um, so I think the journey is kind of evolving and continuing. And I'm in a fortunate enough position where I get to write and hopefully use what power I have to help break it down from within. Yeah, that's such a great. And I, I do appreciate this idea of the journey language, which is why I was trying to incorporate it. Because it is, it's not, there's no ending to it. We haven't reached the end of it. We're right in the middle of it. And right. we're also right in the middle in our society of this larger conversation about like consent and like how, how we're addressing that within society. But I've, as we've been talking on the podcast in particular, like episode um, five, where we talked about sex and sexuality, we also talked about talking to our kids about consent. And I was just curious, you know, as from a father's perspective, raising a daughter, um, what those conversations in y'all's household looks like around that, if you are mm -hmm. having conversations about it? Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. And from okay. a, like, a ridiculously early age where we get like stares from other parents, like, hey, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> um, and, and, you know, that starts with like an early vocabulary. And so, a really good book um, that kind of informed a lot of my thinking is Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski. And she has a really good way of putting this um, to help talk about consent from early ages. This idea that, you know, when you're sick and you're coughing, uh, uh, 
you know, people hold their throat, but they say, you know, they would never say like, you know, hold their throat and say, oh my gosh, my forehead hurts. But that's kind of like the vocabulary that we teach young girls, especially from an early age. You know, you've got a vagina and that vagina is one thing. And there's boys with penis, girls with vagina. There's nothing else but that. And girls only have a vagina as opposed to all the, you know, parts around it. Mm-hmm. You know, the entire anatomy. So from a fairly early age, you can start to name, like, the forehead, the throat, the labia, the clitoris, the vagina, the vulva, you know, all of it. And just kind of give them the power to know, like, you have a body, you have parts, here's their name. You're going to need to know their name if, for instance, you get sick and, oh my gosh, you know, the left part of my labia is hurting. Like, what's the deal? Or labia, I'm actually not quite sure how to pronounce it, maybe you see it. and then later like you know what feels good to you what is allowed to be touched by someone you're you know into you're going to want to be able to if you happen to you know have those sex organs say this part right here feels really good do that yes so you know you can you know that's an older conversation but it starts i think from a very early age with the simple vocabulary and then also with what's allowed you know what you're in charge of your body Mm-hmm. And you get to bring people into it, and you get to say, you know, hey, you're not welcome right now. And that's up to you. With everything from hugging relatives, you're going to hear that around the holidays. That always seems to go into the mix. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you know, don't be forced to hug Aunt Betty. You know, don't want to hurt Aunt Betty's feelings. And that is a message girls get from everywhere. Parents, movies, friends, whatever. You know, give up your body so as not to hurt someone's feelings. And I think that parents can do a tremendous good in cutting that one thing down from an early age. And that builds consent talk. You're in charge. You get to say yes or no. And then, you know, as they grow older, we're at 12 now, so we're kind of getting into that, you know, hey, what are friends experiencing? What are you experiencing? Here's what, you know, you're in charge of your body, no different now than you were when you were in kindergarten. So, Mm. you know, remember that lesson going forward and obviously use protection, please. Yes. Man, there's so much good content there, especially that conversation concerning the holidays. And we're about to... (laughs) We're about to come out with some resources around how to navigate family stuff around the holidays. Um, But that idea of like, oh, come give me a kiss. Like, go and do this with your body. And it's just like, it starts so young and it's so easy to not be aware of it if you're not aware. Um, But if you are aware, it's super important to like teach your kids that just like you said, you're as much in charge of your body when you're in kindergarten as when you're 12, as when you're 20. And very important to be teaching them the appropriate language for for their body as well. I love that you brought that up. And we'll go ahead and put that book in the show notes so that people, if they're curious about it and want to read it, um, they can find it as well. Yeah, that's great. Um, So I guess that kind of leads into one of my next questions. And this is something that I've been loving asking folks as well is something we talk pretty frequently on the podcast about is um, unlearning things that you were taught as a child so that you don't pass those along to your kids. Um, So is there something in particular that, that you've had to unlearn whenever you became a parent about yourself? And then what's something that you've had to unlearn about your own kid as you've been parenting? Wow. That's a fabulous question because I think the easy blanket answer would be like literally everything. (laughs) There's so much to Uh, choose from, but every answer has just been so good. I've really been enjoying it. (laughs) But, I mean, in all honesty, pretty much everything. Because if you are a white guy in America, 
you have grown up, even if you have like a pretty decent family that will raise you to, you know, to be colorblind. Mm-hmm. So that's something you kind of have to unlearn a little bit. It's good natured, it's good intended, but it gives you kind of a an easy out to say, you know, hey, you know, race or sexism doesn't really factor into it. You know, we're colorblind and everyone's equal. I'm not really I'm kind of digging into the different kind of starting lines that I have uh, versus somebody else. So that's one major thing that's part of the journey that also kind of have to actively, you know, it's just such a bias that's like, that I've really had to actively more than anything, I think, get into that mode of talking about race, talking about sex, talking about um, class and, you know, my privilege in it versus my daughter's privilege in it. Um, and getting past that uncomfortable hurdle that I think any white guy in America just feels like uncomfortable talking about race, especially. Um, so that's something that I've really had to explore and continue to explore. Um, but knowing that, you know, I mean, literally scientists study this stuff. Sociologists, you know, have a field day on this. The best way to raise little racists is to pretend to be colorblind. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so that, that's one thing for sure. Um, so that's like a societal bias that I kind of have to take myself into, you know, account all the time. A personal one would be, I guess, taking, I mean, I don't want to feel like I'm on a therapy couch, but taking criticism <laughs> a little bit more. Um, I think there's a, a, me, I've had to learn to deal with, um, you know, someone talking about like race or sexism doesn't necessarily impugn me specifically, mm-hmm. but it will soon enough if I am super defensive and don't want to talk about it and pretend that, you know, it doesn't affect me in any way or I don't have a special role in it. Um, so that's something that I kind of have to continue to come to terms with the idea that, you know, if you're going to be born in America, a whole bunch of racism and sexism is going to get sloughed off on you no matter what. And you can be okay with that and know you've got some issues you need to unpack constantly um, and try not to pass those on. Um, so I think that's probably something that I just continually try to keep in the back of my brain. Right. Like, just be okay with it, but try to do better. <laughs> exactly. And if we if we get stuck and if we get caught up in it, um, or we're afraid to fail, then that just becomes white fragility, right? Where we're white fragility. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. we're we're just like tiptoeing around things and not really wanting to step on anybody's toes, and it's like, well. That's not going to help anybody around you, um, but it's so easy to fall back into that, and that's why it's, it's like you said, it's constant. It's like every day you have to kind of be thinking about it and making sure that you're, you are aware, but doing it in a way that's constructive and it's going to be helpful rather than, than harmful. Right. Was there anything that you had to like that you had like a preconceived idea maybe about like raising a daughter that you had to unlearn whenever you became a parent? Um, I guess yes and no. Thankfully, I was kind of far enough along to recognize that we put a lot of stuff on boys and girls differently, mm-hmm. um, you know, and simply believe a category of boys and girls in America nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was far enough along to realize that I wasn't going to just, you know, emblazon a shirt with, hey, sugar and spice, everything nice, sit there and be pretty. Um, and certainly don't have any personal agency until... You know, never. <laughs> so right. I was aware of that, but I mean, I am 
sure that I probably, you know, if she's like crawling down like a ramp or a slide, like was I more protective than I might have been to a boy? I don't know. Possibly. You know, I also, you know, let her eat as much sand as possible because I was like the main parent at home with her during the day. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess I would probably struggled with like how fragile from the very beginning I thought of her and whether I thought she was fragile and mm-hmm. how long it took to realize, you know, I'm not going to break her. She's going to yeah. be just fine. Um, and then, you know, it's funny. So one thing that I write about in my book and my daughter really called me out on is, and this was just a few years ago. So I might say I'm well along on my journey, but I got some flaws and some, some junk I need to work on. And one of them is we're having this argument one day and I'd always told her, like, hey, it's okay to be angry. Society's going to tell you not to be angry. You know, you're allowed to get it out. You're allowed to be, you know, I don't particularly want you to curse too much, but certainly you can yell and scream and go punch our punching bag and have at it. And so I'd always kind of thought I was, like, empowering her to, like, feel, like, all of her spectrum emotion. And we are having an argument one day, and she said some, you know, I might have told her, I don't know exactly what I had said in that moment, but she's like, hey, Dad, you always tell me you want me to show my anger, but you never want to see it. Ooh. Like, oh, shit. Oh, shit. Never <laughs> <laughs> they cut to the core. Yes. So that's something I think I, I think I had to really work on and, you know, take her words and really do some serious thinking about how much I say versus how much I do. And that, you know, that was only a few years ago when we we're able to have, like, really great conversations. <clears throat> so yeah that moment that's what where like your kids start keeping you accountable for the shit that you're cool. teaching them is terrifying cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> we've like i've definitely experienced that as a parent as well just like that's one of the i mean that you just talked about it so it's like on the front of my my mind but we're always encouraging our kids to be emotive and to feel those things and then <laughs> when they start becoming like emotive and feeling their feelings we're like chill out. <laughs> and they're like, but like, you literally just told us to do this. <laughs> I'm like, that ah. way and not right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's such, it's such a yeah. challenge and such a, such a balance. And as I'm sure, you know, nothing is ever as easy as it is like to say, to live it out is just so much more difficult and nuanced, but I appreciate the willingness to share that antidote of being corrected by your own child. Yeah, of course. I mean, that's one of many to come, I would imagine. Yeah. Um, so you'd mentioned writing a book, and I really want to take make sure we have enough time to talk about your upcoming bet, your upcoming book, because um, I think that there's a lot of great conversation that we can have around it. So if you don't mind kind of introducing what you're writing about and the, the title of it and just kind of give us uh, a little sneak peek into what we can expect. Um, so... It- Along the lines of raising kind of strong, powerful daughters, the book is called Raising Empowered Daughters, A Dad-to-Dad Guide. And it's really, I don't want to say the title is tongue-in-cheek, but it really kind of asks the question of, do we want to raise strong, empowered daughters who are then going to have to fight us in the streets for basic rights in 20 years as they get older Mm. and stronger and more powerful? Or is it really up to dudes like me, white dudes with a lot of power in America, to have a talk amongst ourselves? Um to do better, to be better, to raise better boys and girls. Um, 
instead of kind of raising them to be tough and powerful to fight the systems that we create and that we created and perpetuated and you know still benefit from so that's really kind of the one the talk i wanted to have yeah. with dad dad like me to say here's our place in society here's where we're sending out our kids like where can we do better from the beginning like you know kind of the goal of your podcast this idea that you know we want to get the new generation young and empower them at an early age but also I think really have a talk with parents like I don't just want to raise a strong powerful daughter I want to you know make her way easier by helping cut down the patriarchy from within along the way yeah so that that's kind of the, the message of the book it's kind of looks at um pop culture narratives political narratives everything that kind of goes in my favor in what we men can do to you know break it down in our circles a little bit to make it easier for our kids specifically and then widen our circles to make it easier for all kids hmm. and when can we expect the book to be out uh june uh early june of next summer okay it's awesome. such a fascinating process it's so fun to, <laughs> so fun to do behind the scenes it's cool yeah but it takes a long time and do you find that like that it's um, you're having like a lot of conversations with fellow dads or is it something that's difficult to find people who are willing to like be challenged in that way? Um, you mean for the book or in my own social circles? Kind of in your own so- social circles. So <laughs> kind of yes and no. Um, there's one of the things that I, I really talk about is guys can't, we can't allow sexism in our circles. And if we do like, that's on us. Like mm-hmm. if dudes are happy to be totally sexist in front of you, um, and tell that stupid sexist joke and, and whatever, like if that's in your circle and you're allowing that, you need to have a talk with the people because that's not okay. Yeah. Instead of just kind of letting it pass. So it's kind of funny because I've had talks with some, you know, guys that, about this and I've noticed over the years that my talks have become less and less frequent because a the guys know like don't be total sexist jerk in front of Mike he's just not going to stand for it I don't want to deal with that conversation right now or they just walk away and get out of my life Mm. um so it was kind of probably tougher in the beginning but not so much now if that makes sense yeah um and then, obviously, you know, as you make new friends, which is a little bit hard for an anxious introvert anyway, and then the minute they say something sexist, I'm like, whoa, stop it there, bud. They're kind of <laughs> out of my life quickly anyway. So yeah. I don't encounter it so much, but I'm super fast to call dudes out on it mm. when I hear it in front of me because, I mean, it just lays the groundwork for everything, you know, all the horrors to follow. Yeah. You know, I think that, that conversation could be traced from, you know, we're having a little talk, you know, at the bar or on Facebook about, hey, should women have basic rights? And then all of a sudden there's like an actual vote in a legislature somewhere. No, women don't deserve basic rights. <laughs> like they're connected and we need to call that out. Goodness gracious. We no longer allow it. Yeah. Well, that's great. I was just curious about that. That was kind of like a personal curiosity. <laughs> it was easy to have these conversations with dudes or not. <laughs> And here I go into a giant diatribe. I'm sorry. No, yeah, no, that was a great played. answer. I was, I'm just a very curious person. And so I was just like, hey, <laughs> here's the yeah. first random thing that popped in my head. <laughs> um, 
yeah, so that's really great. And um, we'll definitely be looking forward to that book. Um, I'm excited to read it um, and share it as well. Um, and as I mentioned, we like to close every podcast interview by asking the question of what makes parenting political for you? Um, it's funny because I think I might have just said kind of what I believe is political because you do a lot, what allow, you know, what you allow in your circles is acceptable in kind of your worldview. You know, you're going to either look the other way, laugh it off or say, Hey, that's not right. Stop. And so I think parenting can be extraordinarily political in all manners because you're kind of setting the tone for what's acceptable talk in society whether it's at the playground, hey, you know, do trans kids deserve, you know, to go to a bathroom if they want to, you know, and you're just kind of holding someone's basic humanity in your hand mm-hmm. at the playground as if that's a thing that's perfectly acceptable. And then you see voters, you know, the next day go to the polls and voting on that and just literally holding someone's basic humanity and civil rights as a thing that we can, you know, vote on or discuss casually. So I think what we allow in our circles as acceptable discussion is extraordinarily political. And I think that we can call some of that stuff out politely. You don't have to go full, you know, aggro all the time unless, you know, the moment calls for it. But you can certainly say something to make your personal circles better for your family and the families in your circles. Um, And I think that, that widens. Um, so that the next circle, you know, doesn't allow that type of discussion. Um, just for some giggles, hey, let's have a devil's advocate argument about whether or not trans kids can, you know, have basic rights that we all enjoy. Like, not okay. Um, so I think, yeah, long story short, every tiny little conversation can be extraordinarily political because it sets a tone for what's allowed for your family, for the family next door, and what's allowed to, to vote on and decide on as a, as a broader community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's an answer that um, I keep finding whenever I ask this question of what makes parenting political. Oftentimes, folks will just start thinking about it and they go, well, everything is political. <laughs> like, everything you do has a greater impact in, in that moment. Every choice that you make can either reinforce the systems of harm that are in place or you can be raising someone who's going to be able to resist that and be aware of that. Um, and that's ultimately what's going to be changing our society is raising these younger people in a way that we weren't raised, um, most oftentimes to really be critically aware. Um, but everything ends up being political. My wife says it all the time. The, the political is personal. Um, you can't, you really can't, um, take those two apart from each other. So I really, really appreciate your viewpoint on this conversation of, how you're having conversations within your own social circle um, and how you're modeling that within your home and how you're raising an empowered daughter and just making sure that you're keeping yourself in check as a, as a white guy in society who has a lot of privilege. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. It's been really, really great. I'm super excited about this episode. And if folks want to follow you on social media, is there a place that they can do that? Um, so Twitter seems like a total hellscape, so I'm not on Twitter. <laughs> I'm just on Facebook. Neither am I. <laughs> my name. <laughs> and do you mind spelling your last name for people? Sure. It's Adamic, A-D-A-M-I-C-K. 
Awesome. Well, Mike, I really appreciate you um, being on the podcast this week, and um, I hope that you have a lovely holiday season. Well, thank you, too. I really appreciate you having me. I hope we might have done some good. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.